Good evening. Glad you guys are with us. We are in the uh, sixth lesson of 10 on the book of Revelation. So I'm glad you're with us. Those of you in Edmond, those of you live streaming, remember if you have questions, I know we say this every week, but you never know when someone will be new, text uh, your questions to that number during class and we'll try to answer as many questions that you have as, as we can. So let me say a prayer for us, and then we'll just dive in because this is a really exciting lesson. Lord, thank you so much for the grace you have given to us. Thank you for the country in which we live. Thank you for the world in which we may have influence. We see a lot of trouble in the world, and our heart goes out to those in Florida today who are grieving. Father, we see the face of evil so frequently in our world, but you have told us that these things will be, you have told us that you have overcome it. And I pray that you would give us faith to go confront the evil in this world the way you wish us to. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are talking about uh, the book of Revelation and we're walking through it. I know you're gonna get tired of this, but I have two goals. Let me just put it this way. There are two goals in this class. One of them is not to convince you to understand Revelation in a specific way. As long as you understand it in an orthodox way that's true to the scriptures, then I don't have any problem with that. And so we're gonna talk about four ways of looking at it, all of which Christians have held at various times and today throughout 2000 years, all of which do honor to the scriptures, exalt the scriptures as being authoritative. Now, they may not all be right, but they are all sincere ways to understand a very difficult book. My two goals are this. Number one, you will not be intimidated by the book of Revelation. It's intended to be read by the church. And so all the symbols and imagery, while we may not understand every detail, in fact, we will not understand every detail, we will understand the big themes that God wants us to know here and now. So I don't want us to be intimidated by the book of Revelation. And the second goal in studying this book is to draw practical application. I do not believe, it is my considered opinion, that the book of Revelation was not sealed up and given to us for 2,000 years only to be true at some point in the past or at some point in the future. Christians have read this book for 2,000 years, and it has some profound understandings of how to deal with difficulty and persecution. And so I'd like us to take some practical application from it. Well, how have Christians looked at this book? The first three chapters are Jesus speaking to seven churches, probably the least appreciated words of Jesus in the Bible. We read the Gospels and we read the red letters there, but most people don't realize there are red letters, Jesus speaking in the book of Revelation. So the first three chapters is worth reading. Chapters four through 19 are what are called the tribulation. And so what happens in chapters four through 19 is God's judgment on the gods of this culture, on the gods of the earth, on evil on the earth. And it takes the form of seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. So there's a beautiful literary structure. There's a beautiful structure just to the way God weaves his story together in the book of Revelation. So how do Christians understand the tribulation, chapters four through 19? I'll make it quick because we talk about this every week because I want you to be comfortable with these different views. The basic question is, when will the events in chapter four through 19 happen? Some people believe that these things predicted the fall of Jerusalem 
way back in 70 AD, or perhaps the fall of the Roman Empire in the centuries following that. Others say no, this is a roadmap from the first coming of Christ till the second coming of Christ. That's called the historicist. And so they decode the events in chapters 4 through 19 to correlate to things that have happened throughout history. Futurist, as the name suggests, says no, all of these things in chapter 4 through 19 are going to happen in the future in a seven-year period of time with specific people or nations and specific actions. And then finally, the symbolic view says it's not really about the time. In fact, the things that are talked about in chapters 4 through 19 have happened many times and will happen many times. It's God describing recurring truths and events that are going to lead up to the second coming. So those are the four basic ways people view this, and we're going to look at each one of those as we go through it. Let me remind you of where we are in the tribulation. Last time we talked about Daniel's prophecy. Remember the book of Daniel. It's a book in the Old Testament. Daniel was a prophet. He was a historical figure. He was taken by the Babylonians from Israel about 605 B.C., and then the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, and they enslaved the people of Israel. And so Babylon becomes a symbol of evil and oppression, and you'll see Babylon show up in Revelation as a symbol of evil and oppression. But Daniel was a historical personage who was taken to Babylon, and he prophesied. God showed him visions of things that would come about in time, and one of the prophecies was called the 70 Weeks. The 70 weeks, 490 days, in prophecy, oftentimes a day is a year. So this breaks it down kind of nicely for you, and I'll go through it relatively quickly. But particularly futurists understand it in this way. And that is this, that the first 69 weeks happened from, and you have to, when you go back and read Daniel chapter 9, you'll see why this makes sense. But basically, the first 69 weeks, 483 solar years, took us up to basically the time of Christ. Then there's a pause, and we are in the pause. The entire time between the first coming and the tribulation is a pause. That last week, which would be seven days or seven years, broken into three and a half and three and a half, is called the tribulation. And so... Daniel didn't know it, but he was prophesying about the coming of Christ, and then that last seven years was prophesying about the second coming of Christ after the tribulation. So this is basically how many futurists, and actually others, would see that prophecy. It was God kind of predicting beforehand. Now remember, Daniel's 600 years before the time of Christ, predicting beforehand what would happen at the time of Christ and then what would happen in the end times. So we are, in our last lesson, we were right here in the middle of the tribulation. Three and a half years in and bad things have happened. We've had seven seals, seven trumpets, about half the earth's population is dead, about half of the earth is destroyed. If you're a futurist, you think that Russia and its Arab allies and China have ignited a nuclear war with Israel, which doesn't sound that unlikely, unfortunately. 
If you are a historicist, you're seeing this track history all the way up to this point. But either way, you see God's judgment being played out on the earth. So the 70 weeks is a great backdrop to what's happening here. So in our last lesson, here's where we ended. Basically, Satan had been cast out of heaven, and he had been cast to the earth, and he tried to stop the Messiah from being born. Remember Herod killing the children? Well, in our last lesson, we saw Satan being behind that, saying, I'll stop the Messiah from coming. I'll stop all of us from being redeemed. But he, was, he failed, and he was angry. He rebelled. He was cast out of heaven. And so here's where we left our story. Then the dragon, which the Scripture tells us is Satan, <clears throat> was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Here's the point those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he's going to go after Christians, followers of Christ, whatever word we want to use for that. We said last week that Satan hates you and he wants to destroy you. And I hope that cheered you up this week as you went through your week. But that's where we left it is Satan saying, God has cast me out, he's more powerful, but I am going to go make war on his people. So let's open up chapters 13 and 14, and be introduced to a couple more characters. One thing we need to know about Satan, this passage in Isaiah is typically understood to refer to Satan. Listen to this. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, Satan, a created being, an angel of God, said, I want to be God. I will not serve humanity. In fact, they will serve me. And so Satan's motive is to rule, is to be God. He wants worshipers from us. And so what Satan is about to do is set up his own trinity. You have the Father, the Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who testifies, Satan wants to be God, and he's going to set up on his kingdom, this earth, a trinity, and he wants to be worshipped. So watch what happens in chapters 13 and 14. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Now, I want you to understand, the imagery of a beast doesn't, historicists don't think this is a real creature. Futurists don't think it's a creature. In fact, they all think it's a person or an entity. But in apocalyptic literature, it's being described as a beast. And we can learn some things about this person or this entity from what it says. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. And on each head, a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon, Satan, gave this beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seems to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast and said, who is like the beast and who can make war against him? Well, let's decode a couple of the symbols here because there's some very standard symbols. The sea means the political realm, 
a political world. So this is a person or a nation or an entity that's arising in the political sphere. So the sea represents the political world. Secondly, the seven heads typically represent authority. Later in Revelation, they're gonna interpret it as the seven hills of Rome, basically. We'll get to that in a little bit. And then you have 10 horns. Horns represent power. And then the diadems represent worldly authority, crowning a king, that sort of thing. So this beast has a lot of military power and political authority. This is a political leader or a nation or an empire or an entity that has a lot of political power. This is the Antichrist. This is Satan creating his Antichrist. This figure wants to be worshiped, and we'll see that in a minute. So the question is, who do the various views think this is? Well, historicists say, remember we were close to the Protestant Reformation as they see this kind of moving through history. They see this Antichrist as the papacy, basically the Reformation popes, the Roman Catholic Church. People who understand this, famous historicists, think John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Wesley, Isaac Newton, and in modern times, Seventh-day Adventists hold this historicist view. So when they get to this part, they say, oh, this is predicting, in John's time, the rise of the papacy. And the Pope wanted to be worshipped. And it's a false religion. That's the view of the historicists toward the Catholic Church. And so that view understands the Antichrist being the Pope or the papacy. Futurists say, no, this is all happening in the future. This is going to be a nation that rises up and wants to have world domination. Dispensational futurists think left behind, think, no, this is a specific world leader who is possessed by Satan. If you've read the Left Behind series or seen that, you see the Antichrist is a gifted, talented political leader who is possessed and driven by Satan and his purposes. And then finally, the symbolic view says, this has a strong, strong parallel to Daniel chapter seven. Let me give you the short version. Daniel had a vision in chapter seven. This is in 600 BC. And he had a vision of four beasts. And the first beast was a leopard and then a bear and then a lion, and then a terrible beast that was worse than all the others. Well, typically when you look back, what he's saying is God's saying, you'll have the Babylonian empire, then the Persian empire, then the Greek empire of Alexander the Great, and then the Roman empire. It'll be a beast that's even more powerful than any of the others. So that apocalyptic vision of Daniel kind of referred to specific kingdoms throughout time. Well, the fourth beast, Rome, is kind of an archetype. If you think about it, Rome persecuted God's people. I mean, 200 years of murdering Christians. The emperors said, we are gods and you should worship us. So the Rome of history becomes an archetype, a forecast of this antichrist in the future. 
So symbolic point of view will say, this is every government and every ruler, every Kim Jong-un that wanted to be worshiped and wanted to oppress God's people throughout all of history. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but you can see they would all agree the Antichrist wants to be God, and he wants to persecute God's people. So that's what's happening with this Antichrist. Let's move on. So a little bit more about the Antichrist. The beast, the Antichrist, was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. We were in the middle of the tribulation. We have three and a half years left. So 42 months, he's going to rule, basically going to have a lot of authority in the world. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. I only want to make one point about this. He was given power to do this. Don't ever think that Satan is in control of what's happening. He was given power to make war against the saints and conquer them, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. What does the number four represent? The created world. And you'll see this even in the adjectives that are used. He's given authority over Satan's domain. Jesus said Satan is the ruler of this present world, and that's why he came to redeem us, to reclaim God's world. But basically, he's given authority to rule over this world. He has authority and power. He said, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb, Jesus, that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, pay attention. If anyone is to go into captivity, so it will be. If anyone is to be killed, so it will be. This calls for endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. What's Jesus saying? He said, in this world you will have trouble. He said, Satan wants to kill you. Take heart. I have overcome the world. You will overcome the world. But you will need to persevere. You will suffer some. So that's what's being said in this passage. Well, the historicists see this beast, this person, as the papacy. Why? What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is basically, at its most basic, making yourself equal to God. So look at this, very interesting. Historicists would say, this is the Pope. The Roman pontiff, here are a few quotes from popes in the past. The Roman pontiff judges all men, but is judged by no one. I have the authority of the King of Kings. I am all in all and above all. We hold the place of almighty God on earth. You know that I am the Holy Father, the representative of God on earth, the vicar of Christ, which means that I am God on the earth. Well, historicists, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, and some, some people today say, you know what? Those popes in the Middle Ages thought they were God. That is the Antichrist. And so they set themselves up to literally be God. So historicists understand this referring to the popes in the Middle Ages. The uh, futurists basically think that this is the Antichrist, this person or this entity that's going to force worship. Think about the emperor cult. We talked about this in one of our first weeks. The emperors wanted to be worshipped. Christians wouldn't worship the emperor, and so they were killed for that. That is a Roman emperors are a forecast of this ruler. It'll be a new Roman emperor. It'll be a kind of a Roman emperor in that this person will want to be worshipped. 
And then symbolic says, this is the coercive power of governments. In other words, governments coerce their people with the sword, with imprisonment, with death. And so they, the Antichrist will use the power of government to coerce you to try to make you deny Jesus Christ. And that's happened many times before, and it will happen many times in the future. So depending on your point of view, who you think this Antichrist is, but whichever view you have, you understand the Antichrist is trying to put himself or itself in the place of God, and that our role will be to persevere. So let me pause there and see if you have some questions about this first beast, the Antichrist. Why did Satan need to create the Antichrist? Couldn't he have done it himself? Could Satan not have done this himself? Could he have not taken bodily form, if you will? Think of him as an angel. So he's a spiritual being, but you see angels taking form that we can interact with. So could not Satan come down with his you know, little pointed tail and his horns and all that and said, hey, I'm here to rule this place. Satan, if you think about the name, this, this is really interesting. We're going to get into this in a minute, so I'll try to keep this brief, but that's a fascinating question. So Satan means the accuser, and devil means the deceiver. And so Satan, in his nature, is one who accuses. He's one who lies and deceives. Think about the Garden of Eden. He said, oh, that fruit? You won't die if you eat that. In fact, you'll be like God, and he doesn't want you to be like God. In other words, he deceives, he lies. That's his nature. Jesus is going to call him in John chapter 8. Satan is a liar, and he's the father of lies. And so for whatever reason, it seems to be the nature of Satan to raise up political or individuals in this world to do his bidding. So it's a great question as to why. It seems to be the nature of Satan to work through, whether that's people or governments or media or whatever it is, to deceive and to oppress. Good question. So I guess the Catholics aren't in on that historicist viewpoint about the Pope. So how many Catholics are historicists? Zero at my last count, yes. In fact, during the Protestant Reformation, again, I'm not trying to throw stones here, I'm just trying to give you the historical facts of this. During the Protestant Reformation, most of the reformers understood this book because Protestants had been persecuted. I mean, it's a historical fact. People had been killed by the Catholic Church for quite some time for disagreeing. And the Renaissance popes were, let's just put it this way, they were not the best examples of Christ on earth. Okay, So you saw a lot of persecution and people being burned at the stake, people being flayed alive. I mean, terrible things happening. So the reformers, they were threatened with their lives. And they looked at this and they said, man, this sure looks like the Antichrist. And so they became historicists. I mean, they didn't call it that, but that's what they were. They saw the Catholic Church and the Pope in particular as being the Antichrist. Well, Catholic theologians, in order to combat this, said, no, that's not a good understanding of Revelation. And they might be right. Again, I'm not taking a side here. They said, Revelation isn't about the Pope. Revelation is about seven years in the future. So Catholics tend to be, I'm painting with a really broad brush, but at that time they became Futurists and said this has nothing to do with the Pope. So yes, your analysis is that 
Historicist is not a popular view in the Catholic Church. What is the significance of the blasphemous names, and what do you think they might have been? <laughs> well, what is the significance of the blasphemous names, and what might they have been? Okay, this is rated PG-13, so I can't tell you what they might have been. No, I'm just joking. We don't know, but blasphemy basically is something that speaks of God as though he is evil. Blasphemy is putting yourself on a par with God. So blasphemous names. For example, think about the emperor Domitian. I think I told you about him. He was basically the Roman emperor. Likely, in my view, when John wrote and received this vision and wrote it down. So let's call it about 95 AD. He wanted to be addressed as our Lord and our God. He insisted that that's how people will address me. That's blasphemous. So one of the names might be, I am your Lord and your God. That's blasphemy. That's, I'm on the level of God. So that's an example of what might be a blasphemous name and what might have been written there. Um, in 1 John 4, 3, it says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Is this the same Antichrist? Good question. Is 1 John speaks about Antichrists, and is this the same person? And I'll defer that because I actually want to quote 1 John later near the end of this lesson and talk about that issue. So great question, but let me just defer it till we get there. How does the one world order government fit into this prophecy? How does the one world order government fit into this prophecy? Very nicely if you're a futurist. So think about this. The Antichrist has basically, over time, consolidates very quickly all political power in the world and begins to make war on Israel, but basically, for our purposes, has the ten horns, all this military power, and the ten diadems. In other words, whatever your particular view of that, bottom line, Antichrist is a political prodigy and brings the world together. Many have said, that sounds like one world order. In other words, he's going to be a world ruler, like an emperor of the world or president of the world. That's why some people, we'll get to this in a minute, but I'll steal the thunder, have said the UN might be the Antichrist. Maybe the UN will become very, very powerful and it will basically be a world government. So some people have seen in the Antichrist, because of his worldwide power, a world government or a, an individual world ruler. So futurists, many futurists think this Antichrist is a future world government run by either an entity or a single person. It fits very nicely with the futurist view. When you look at the chart that you had up for Daniel, the 70 weeks, the first 69 weeks are measured in solar years and the last week in lunar years. Why is that? Why are the, you guys are really sharp. I'll give you the short answer on this. I'll give you the short answer. So why are the first 69, well, there are two answers to this. What is a solar year? What's a lunar year? And then secondly, why does it change? Let me give you the bottom line. It changes because it works out really well, okay? But what's the difference in a solar and a lunar year? Short version. Uh, the first 69 weeks of years, the Jewish year was 360 days. It's based on a lunar cycle. Well, you and I both know that if you have a 360-day year, 
over time, you're gonna kinda get off kilter here a little bit. Pretty soon, spring is not spring anymore. You're having your Winter Olympics in spring. So what they would do is every few years, they would add an extra month. I mean, they don't know why, but they realize, ooh, 360 lunar, that's really good for the lunar, but wait a minute, it doesn't seem like that works with the solar. So they'd add an extra month. We do the same thing, sort of, every four years, right? We add a day to keep us on the solar year. Well, they added a whole month because they were on a 360-day uh, year. Well, if you translate 490 360-day years, that's lunar, into how many solar years of 365 days is that, then that becomes 483. And so we measure our calendar. So for example, when we say Jesus began his ministry, supposing this is the case, in 27 AD, that's on our solar calendar. So they just convert it into solar years so it fits our calendar. So it's purely a math thing. It's not, there's nothing meaningful other than just translating it into our calendar. Why does it change? Well, it works out really nicely to leave it a lunar year in the seven years. Good, good question. Hey, there's another beast. Let's go talk about this. So we've got the Antichrist, whomever you think that may be. But then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. If the sea is the political realm, the earth is the religious realm. This beast is a religious figure or institution. He had two horns like a lamb. This is the most interesting description, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, on his behalf, and he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Well, I got all kinds of interesting things to say about this beast. This is a person or an institution. You have to hear Daniel in this. Remember the Nebuchadnezzar setting up the image, which was a statue of himself, by the way. Big old statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, everybody's going to worship this, right? And so there are three little buddies of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and they go, we are not bowing down to this image. He said, well, guess what? I have a hot, fiery furnace over here ready for you, right? That image of this totalitarian ruler who wants to be worshiped like a god back in Daniel. You see the images here. This person, this entity, is going to try to get people to worship the Antichrist. So this beast, by the way, you don't have to guess who this is because in uh, later on in chapter 16, in chapter 19, in chapter 20, the scripture is going to refer to this beast as the false prophet. So we have God, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You have Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, the false witness. This is a false prophet. This is a religious leader or an institution who is going to deceive people into worshiping the Antichrist, behind whom is Satan. 
whose purpose is what? He wants all mankind to worship him. This is a fascinating description. He had two horns like a lamb. So who's described as the lamb with two horns? Jesus Christ is the lamb of God, the lamb who was slain, whose blood washed away our sins. This beast, this entity, is going to look Christian. But he spoke like a dragon. What does that mean? But he was really Satan giving you this message. What this is, and this doesn't matter what your belief is, this is a false prophet who says, hi, I'm a Christian, and then is a false teacher that leads you away from Christ to worship something else. That's the false prophet. So who is this false prophet? Well, Jesus talked about this false prophet. In Matthew 7, he said this. He said, there will come into the world false teachers in sheep's clothing. In other words, wolves in sheep's clothing. Basically, they're going to look like they're followers of mine, but they're going to say things to you that are not true. They're false teachers, Jesus said. He also said in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Satan doesn't just show up on your doorstep and say, hi, I'm Satan. How would you like to follow me and just repudiate Jesus Christ? Not a lot of takers to that, right? So what he does is he masquerades as an angel of light. The Antichrist doesn't show up and say, hey, by the way, I'm not Christian. I hate Christians. I want to destroy all of you. He says, I came here to help you. I came here to protect you. And then he rules. The false prophet says, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, but begins to speak lies about Jesus. And the next thing you know, we're following something that's not Christ. It's a false teacher, a false prophet. So what do historicists think this is? Well, they think this is the papacy. If the Pope is the Antichrist, the priests of the Catholic Church are the false prophets getting you to follow him. That's a historicist point of view. What about the futurist? Futurists say the Antichrist is either a gifted individual who becomes a world ruler and wants to be worshipped, or perhaps a government or an entity, and the false prophet is the apostate Christian church. In other words, it's Christian churches and Christian pastors who are going to compromise and are going to follow this world leader. This is fascinating. Pardon me to go off track here for just a second. I was listening to a clinical psychologist today making an interesting argument with which I unfortunately basically agree. He said, when you look at Nazi Germany and you look at the average Christians in Germany in 1939 to 1943, you know, when the Holocaust was going on, he said 99% of them, a few rebelled and said, wait a minute, this is not right. This is not godly. But 99% of them either went along with it or were supportive, saying, Hitler, he's going to restore our identity. I don't believe he's doing anything bad. That's just the press lying to us. In other words, 99% of the people went along with that. Well, that's a historical fact. His point of view was that, say, in the future, and you get an antichrist, and he's going to persecute the church, his point of view was that 99% of people, even in the church, will still compromise, will make excuses, will still go along with that. I pray that's not true, and I'm not sure I believe that's true, but I do know how insidious that can be, isn't it? 
Because you see, the Antichrist exercises the coercive power of government. In other words, says, if you don't believe the way I want you to believe, I'll throw you in prison. Or like the Roman emperors, I'll kill you. I'll execute you. The false prophet uses deception and says, no, the beast isn't a bad guy. Look, this government's not bad. In fact, let's get on board. Well, I know the Bible doesn't say this, but it's okay. Let's follow this. You see the coercive power of the Antichrist and the persuasive, deceptive power of the false prophet. That's the message of Revelation. It says, whatever time you live in, whether this is happening in the future or it's the Catholic Church if you're one of the reformers, whatever your view is to know that Satan will use both of these, coercive power, oppression, but also deceptive, deceitful powers to say, you can go along, just go a little bit. Let's go a little bit more. That's what we saw in World War II, and many people think that's what we'll see here. So that's the false prophet. Um, Interestingly, let's keep going. This false prophet also forced everyone, I want you to count these, this is interesting, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave. Ooh, six. We haven't run into six lately, have we? We usually run into four created things, three divine things, or seven, which is all of totality. What in the world could six possibly mean? Six is basically one taco short of the combo plate. You know, I mean, it's, it's like it's not seven, it's just kind of fell short a little bit. It's like you get your order and there's something missing. It's incomplete. And so the false prophet can't do a seven. He is incomplete. He is a deceiver. And so he forced everyone, all six categories, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehand so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And this calls for wisdom. Because if anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. The number is 666. Okay, this is fascinating. So we need to talk about this just a little bit. So remember what we know. First of all, six, if seven is perfection, six is imperfection. It's falling short. It's not the real deal. In Hebrew, remember we talked about holy, holy, holy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. In Hebrew, you don't have comparative adjectives like good, better, best. So to say something is the best, you'd say holy, holy, holy means what? The absolute most holy. You would emphasize it three times. What is imperfection emphasized three times? Imperfection, imperfection, imperfection. It's like the ultimate imperfection, the ultimate unclean, the ultimate falling short. 666 is chosen for a reason. It's symbolic of Satan who wants to be God, but he's not. And he's sort of the ultimate evil, the ultimate falling short. So his number is 666. There is a thing called uh, gematria. Gematria is basically the study of names and numbers. In other words, using words and turning them into numbers and drawing some kind of mystical things. You actually see some of that in things like the Bible code, other things like that. They take the Hebrew letters and they say, well, this name actually equates to this number. And oh, isn't that interesting? That's called gematria. Is it true? Not necessarily true at all. 
But the point is, it's been used. Here's why it came about. In ancient times, in Hebrew, in Greek, in Latin, all those ancient languages, they did not have numbers and letters. I mean, stop and think about that for a minute. You know Roman numerals? Roman numerals aren't numbers. They're just using letters to represent numbers, right? That's before they could afford to have separate numbers like we can, right? We have an alphabet, A through Z. We have numbers one through nine. They didn't. And so in Hebrew, in Greek, in Latin, they used letters as numbers. So for example, A would be one and B would be two and C would be three. And so if you wanted to make a number, you would string these letters together. Well, how would you know? Well, because it wouldn't be a word. I mean, if you're reading the Greek New Testament, you go reading along and you hit 666, you go, whoa, that doesn't make a word. You go, oh, it's a number. In other words, they're using the letters to be a number. So people have used this number to interpret who is the Antichrist. If this number is his name, then who might it be? Well, needless to say, historicists say, I don't care about the number, it's the Pope, right? <laughs> very convinced of that. Futurists, though, say, this is very interesting. This is a clue to who the Antichrist will be. So this is gematria, kind of the practice of assigning it, which was popular in the ancient world. They use letters as numbers. So here's an example. The title for the Pope in Latin, Vicarius Filii Dei, if you take those letters and treat them like numbers, guess what you get, 666. That means the vicar of the Son of God. So, historicists say, what more proof do you want, right? In other words, the name of the Pope, one of his titles, translates to 666. So they, they find that very suggestive. Here's an interesting one. I'm gonna put in a plug for the preterists for a minute. Remember preterists, I don't talk about them much because they said, ah, this all happened at the fall of Jerusalem. Here's an interesting thing. Nero died in 68 AD, right before the temple was destroyed in 70. Preterists often believe the book of Revelation is a prediction that Jerusalem's gonna fall. The full spelling of Nero Caesar in Hebrew letters is that, and then if you turn them into numbers, I'm just gonna do this math for you. Guess what that turns into? Yes, no coincidence, 666. So, preterists say Nero's name equates to 666, and nobody's asked yet about this, but I don't want to get into it for time reason, but here's really interesting. You notice that three times it's talked about the Antichrist received a wound with a sword, and everybody thought he was dead, but he wasn't dead, and everybody marveled at that. Three times that's been mentioned. Well, here's an interesting little thing about Caesar. So, Nero Caesar. Nero crazy. Anyway, he dies in 68, but he doesn't die. He killed himself. How did he kill himself? Stabbed himself in the throat. There was a rumor, and this is just a historical fact, there was a rumor after that amongst the people that Nero didn't really die, that he would come back from that wound, and at some point Nero would return and rule Rome. So, that just sounds an awful lot like what we've just heard about the Antichrist. So I just want to put in a plug for the preterists and say they would understand this as referring to Nero. That's one of the reasons they think Revelation is about the fall of Jerusalem. So I'm not advocating for anything. I just kind of want you to get a feel for how people understand this. No matter what your view is, 666 
is bad news, okay? Questions about the false prophet or number of the beast? Yes, what was the significance of the fatal wound that was healed other than pointing to Caesar? Well, two possible things. What is the significance of the fatal wound that was healed? One would be, if your preterist said, that's referring to the Nero myth of the time that he would come back to life. Others would say, that futurist would say, there's going to be like, for example, an assassination attempt to this ruler, the Antichrist, and he's gonna appear like, oh, he's dead, and then it's like, he's not dead, this is a miracle. Oh my gosh, this is the greatest ruler we've ever seen. So it's gonna to appear to be very miraculous. Think, this, the parallels are unbelievable. Jesus Christ, crucified, died, and raised from the dead. The Antichrist will appear to be dead, but then he's alive. This is Satan literally recreating a little unholy trinity. So you see the symbolic connections there. Good question. I have a couple of nominations for the false prophet. Nominations for the false prophet. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Muhammad. Muhammad. You are not alone in that. Some people think Muhammad is a false prophet that says, hey, I worship God. I worship the God of Abraham, which Muhammad said, I'm restoring the true worship of Abraham, uh, the God of Abraham and uh, Ishmael. And so, but what he speaks is not the true worship of God. And so there certainly are people that think Muhammad is a false prophet and is the false prophet. And in the end times, if you think about Russia, if you think of your futures, you got Russia, the Arab allies, you got the Muslims trying to destroy the Israelites. That's what's happening in the tribulation and a nuclear war. And so Muhammad then effectively becomes a false prophet to lead people away from the true God. So yes, there are people that think that Muhammad fulfills the false prophet role. I have some current um, prosperity gospel preachers that current have been nominated Current prosperity gospel well. preachers. Well, I will say this about that, and that is this. Jesus said there would be false teachers. I'm not saying they're all the, the false prophet, but there is no doubt throughout all of Christian history and no doubt today, I would argue even more so today because of the prevalence of the internet, the prevalence of blogs, the prevalence of that people who speak things that are not true can be very persuasive and they can get a very big audience. In Jesus' time, how big an audience could you get? Depends on how loud your voice was, you know, how long you, how big you could yell. In this world, you can be very crafty and persuasive. You can even be sincere, and you can be propagating things that are not true about the Bible, not true about Jesus, and many people will be persuaded. So there are many, I would argue, false prophets at work in the world. Good question. Do we know it when we're in the last days, or will we, depending on your perspective? Do we? I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Know it when we're in the last days. Are we aware that we're in the last days, or will we be aware, or were they aware? Will there be a sign we're in the last days? Well, most Democrats in America think, yes, the election of Donald Trump means that we are in the last days. That's not a political slam. I only say it as a matter of humor, as a cheap shot. But my point is that depending on our points of view, we, we all feel that way. Let me give you another example. That was just joking. But Kim Jong-un and a nuclear weapon, Iran and a nuclear weapon. You say, look, events have conspired such that 
I do not see a way out of this. It seems that the cataclysm is about to be unleashed in the world. And so people see signs of being in the end times. It's unclear to me whether or not we will know that we are, if you're a futurist, if you are in the end times, because things will get worse and worse, how will you know you're in the specific seven years? Now I'm talking from a futurist point of view now. You're in that specific seven years. And futurists typically like to talk about certain markers. Futurists in general, and I don't mean to be slamming uh, we futurists about this, but tend to be a little preoccupied with current events. Like we need to know when we're in the, in the tribulation. Here's my question. Why do you need to know if you're in the tribulation? What's the difference between I'm in the tribulation or things are just really bad? Does it make any difference to how I will live out my faith? My only issue on that is don't get wrapped around the axle about whether or not we're in the tribulation. Let's be found faithful whenever Christ comes. He could come today and go, you've been in the tribulation for seven years. We go, who knew? You know? And so in all seriousness, I don't know that we will know. We certainly won't know the day or the hour of Christ's return. Futurists believe we can know when some of these markers start to happen. So they may very well be right. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's mistaken, but it's very hard to know. And I would suggest to you it's not worth obsessing about. Let me put it that way. Good question. Well, let's uh, talk about a couple other things left to talk about. One is simply this. Expect, here's the lesson that no matter what your point of view is, you agree. Expect that Satan, whose goal is to rule this world, and to enslave humanity to sin, be captives to sin, is that he will use the coercive power of governments to oppress us. And you, if you have eyes to see, you will see this happening, even in our world today. And he will use the deceptive power. And you see that at work in our world today to help us to compromise a little. He'll either intimidate us with force or tempt us a step at a time to move away from Christ. So all these views see Satan acting in that way. And I would argue that's one of the great lessons for us is whether or not we are in the last times, we are in the midst of Satan trying to undermine our faith. And so it is a time that calls for perseverance. Well, let's ask this question. Uh, here, by the way, the mark of the beast is typically thought to be a physical thing. Some would say it's gonna be an implanted chip and you can't buy or sell. Think about this. That's not physical coercion, like I'm gonna kill you if you don't. It's just like, I'm not gonna kill you, but you're gonna starve or you can't get a job. If you remember back in the seven letters to the churches, I told you that persecution wasn't just physical. It was actually more economic. In other words, Christians just couldn't get jobs. And Christians were marginalized and they became very poor. They had a hard time feeding their family. And they said, are you sure you don't wanna worship the gods of Rome? I can get you some work if you do. In other words, you'll see this economic coercion. In fact, I would argue we see a little bit of that in our world today. Uh, some would say it'd be a mark on the hand, mark on the forehead, it'll be involved with spying and selling. Some would say it's a Sam's card, I don't know. But <laughs> seriously, it, it's important to know that it has to do with economics, your ability to make a livelihood. And so there's a coercive power. So who is the Antichrist? Well, certainly people have thought it was Hitler or Attila the Hun. The historicists say it's the Pope. Others would say it's an Islamic figure or a Chinese or Korean figure or the UN. That's the symbol for the UN. 
In other words, it's some monolithic person or entity who is opposed to God, that is not godly, and that wants to pull people away in another direction. The answer is no one knows exactly who the Antichrist is. If you're a dispensational futurist, you think it's an individual, and many of those dispensational preachers would say it's an individual who is alive today. Others would say, no, it's the new Rome. It's going to be a world government that comes together, maybe under Vladimir Putin and the Russians, or maybe under the Chinese. I mean, who knows? But it will be a world government or a coalition of governments that come together against Israel. And the United States will be on the side of Israel. And so there will be this global thermonuclear war, which is the tribulation. So depending on your view is how you interpret the events. The why and what's happening, everybody agrees on. The how it's going to happen is something that people do disagree about. And finally, I told you we'd talk about this passage. Here's 1 John 2. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Now, this is John writing near the end of the first century. Some argue we are in the last days. Uh, now, in other words, the last days aren't a few days. The last days are the time when Satan has free reign to persecute Christians until the second coming of Christ. Jesus said false Christs, false Christs, and false prophets will appear. I mean, it's like, wow, could you nail that any better? Will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the chosen, the elect, the believers in Christ, if that is even possible. In other words, the deception and the coercion will be very tempting for us to hold on to our faith, to be faithful through that time. So, who are these antichrists? If you are a symbolic point of view, you say, perfect sense to me. The antichrist is actually an archetype. There have been many antichrists. There are antichrists on the internet right now that would love to have you go away and worship something else, typically yourself. I mean, you don't realize it, but it's like, yeah, Jesus is okay with this. Jesus is okay with that. You do what you want and Jesus is okay with this. A lot of Christians telling people that today. Symbolic would say, well, that's an antichrist. That's what John was talking about. That's what Jesus was talking about. Many false Christs will come. So this is kind of an argument for the symbolic point of view, but it doesn't rebut the futurist point of view. Futurists don't say there aren't little a antichrists, people that are opposed to Christ or trying to corrupt you, but there's going to be one big antichrist in the end time. And frankly, both of those could be true at the same time. So it doesn't rebut the futurist view, but it, it tends to be very supportive of a symbolic understanding of Revelation saying, you know, this is actually not just talking about the future. This is talking about here and now as well as the future. Make sense? That's the Antichrist and the false prophet. And I would suggest to you that whether you think they're in the future or not, it's hard to argue that the power of coercion and the power of deception are both at work today to undermine our faith. Let me finish chapter 14. I'm just going to tell you about that. Chapter 14, let's bring it back now. So the seven seals, when the seventh seal was open, it sure looked like the end of the world was happening. It talked about the skies were rolled up like a scroll and the earth ceased to exist. Symbolic view says the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath are telling you the whole story three times. 
It goes from God's judgment to the end of the world. God's judgment, end of the world. Telling you the same story three times. Well, sure enough, chapter 14 says, after the seventh trumpet is blown, Jesus is given a sigh and he harvests the earth. And so he takes the grain away and he destroys what's left. And it said the blood ran as high as the bridles of the horses for a hundred miles square. In other words, you see this vision of Christ coming to judge the world and he takes his people and he destroys, his wrath destroys the rest. Same thing you saw at the end of the seventh seal. So symbolic point of view says, hey, this is telling you the story three times. Other points of view would say, no, this is basically further cataclysmic things happening, but we haven't gotten to the end yet. So chapter 14, depending on your view, is God's wrath, God's judgment being very, very real. So you see the harvest of the earth. So that's the end of the seven trumpets. We now have, we're not through with the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're just getting started in business here, right? So what's coming next? The Antichrist and the false prophet are going to work, and in three and a half years, they are going to cause so much mayhem, even your Allstate insurance can't cover it. We have seven bowls of wrath. We have Armageddon. We have a thousand-year reign in Jerusalem, the last judgment, and new heaven and a new earth. So that's what's coming up next week. Seven bowls of wrath get poured out on the Antichrist and the beast. They don't take it well. See you guys next week.